Good morning, everybody. Um, today we're reading from Matthew. Um, we're going to be on page 823 if you're following along in your Pew Bible. It's going to be Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, I meant to say this earlier, so forgive me, but I just want to thank all of you who came out yesterday to help us with our work day. Uh, a big crew of you guys came out, and there has been so much good work done inside this place and outside this place. I was kind of secretly hoping that we wouldn't fill up the dumpster, because I got this old ping pong table in my garage that I've really been wanting to get rid of, but we filled it up to over capacity. Uh, spread a lot of mulch, did a lot of really good work here yesterday. So to those of you who were able to make it out here yesterday and join us with that, thank you so much. Uh, a huge blessing. Things look so much better, uh, even than they did 24 hours ago. So grateful for that and for, for John's leadership in that yesterday. Okay, uh, I want to start today by imagining three waterfront scenarios. And I want to tee up the first scenario with a flashback to Super Bowl 38 in 2004, when the New England Patriots defeated the Carolina Panthers 32 to 29. It's beside the point, really. You probably know that Super Bowls are known for their outlandish, usually humorous commercials. Uh, in 2004, it cost $2.4 million for a 30-second slot. In contrast, 2022's 30-second cost was a cool seven mil, all right? So uh, inflation affecting the Super Bowl commercials as well. But one of the commercials back in 2004 was far more sobering than it was humorous. And I'd like to show that to you this morning. Keep in mind, when I show it to you, it's 20 years old. It looks like it is 20 years old. Uh, so keep that in mind. So let's see if we can watch this together with sound. Hopefully it will work. If your friend was in trouble, you'd help them, wouldn't you? Hopefully that wasn't too, too triggering, triggering for anyone in here. It's very sobering, not what you expect to see during a Super Bowl. And they asked that sobering question, if your friend was in trouble, you'd help them, wouldn't you? What's wrong with that girl standing on the dock, just staring at that human being flailing in the water? It makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable just to watch that. I don't know how it makes you feel. Doesn't she have an obligation as a fellow human being to inconvenience herself, to get a little cold, to get a little wet in order to preserve life? I think so. To be human is to rescue another human from dying, if at all possible. Let's imagine another water-related situation, but a little less obviously dangerous. Still dangerous, but less obviously so. Imagine, imagine sometime this summer uh, going down the shore and setting up shop on the beach, uh, ready for a long day of fun in the sun, getting your home base ready to go. So you're setting up your umbrella, the tunes are playing, you got your cooler out, and you're getting absorbed in some novel. Uh, 
sounds amazing, doesn't it? Who is ready for summer vacation right now? Uh, but imagine doing this all the while your kids are heading out into the surf uh, for a long day of play uh, out there in the water. And when the current is really going, uh, the bodies of our little ones can easily be carried down shore away from home base, right? I've experienced this a lot. Uh, a few times my kids have gotten swept so far down shore that I can barely see them, like two little dots, four little dots, however many are out there, way out in the distance, 100 yards down shore. It's disconcerting as a parent to see your kids drifting so far down there. So what do you do? Do you stick your nose back in the book? No, you don't. You run to the water's edge. You wave and flail your hands big time. You shout as loudly as you can to get them to come back. You do all you can do to get your kids back to safety. Why? Because drifting is dangerous. And the further they drift away from you, the further away from safety they are, the further into danger they are. And sometimes they don't even realize the drift is so far until it's too late. I mean, if you're drowning, like the video, you probably know it, right? But if you're drifting, you're not always aware that you're drifting. Both kinds of people need saving, though, the drowners and the drifters. To be family is to warn family of dangerous drift, if at all possible. Third scenario. Imagine a third slightly modified beach scenario with lots of people, and you see someone out in the distance struggling to swim. They might be struggling, and it looks like they're going down. You don't know the person, but you can clearly see that they are struggling. There's a lifeguard on duty, though, right? And so you are concerned, but surely they're going to handle this situation. So you don't do anything about it. That person is struggling. Uh, they're just an acquaintance. After all, you don't really know them. But if the person you saw was a family member, a brother, a sister, a son, or a daughter, you better believe that you would not be waiting for someone else to run out there and take care of your family member. You'd be sprinting to the shoreline, diving into the water with reckless abandon. Why? because that's your family. They're way more than an acquaintance. They're way more than a friend. They are family. And that brings a whole other level of responsibility, of love, of deep care for the person that is struggling. So to be family is to rescue family from dying, if at all possible. So if the right and sensible thing in each of these scenarios would be to rescue and to warn, how much truer is that of us as Christians, as a Christian family? If we see a brother or a sister drowning in some sort of sin, should we stare, stand and stare like the girl in the commercial on the dock? If we see a fellow brother or sister slowly drifting down the shore away from Jesus, should we stick our noses back on our phones, indifferent to their wandering? No, to holistically love each other is to be willing to inconvenience ourselves for the good of the other. Throughout church history, this loving approach has been called church discipline. We finally arrived at the day we're going to talk about church discipline. And is this not what Jesus has done for us? He left the safety and the joy of heaven to rescue us. I know the term church discipline can sound spooky. It can sound negative. It can sound depressing. But it is rooted in the rich soil of the gospel itself. It is a good and loving thing. So here's where we are headed today. The motivation of discipline, of church discipline, demonstrating gospel love, the need for church discipline, preventing gospel distortion, and then the fruits of church discipline, restoring gospel clarity. Those are the hooks that we're going to hang our points on this morning. So let's start with the motivation of discipline, demonstrating gospel love. 
So when it comes to something as controversial as church discipline, we can't miss the motivation for it or our entire process will be off and we'll end up way off course. The most common analogy that the scriptures provide when it comes to discipline is the relationship between parent and child. Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 13, whoever spares discipline hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So the motivation for church discipline is the same as the discipline between father and child or parent and child. It's love. Gospel love is what motivates church discipline. And Jesus' calling on each of us is clear. He wants us to imitate, however imperfectly, his rescuing life. We are called to imitate Jesus' rescuing life. Jesus' gospel love for us is our motivation toward church discipline, love demonstrated to each other. So to be in Jesus' family is to warn his family of dangerous drift. And to be in Jesus' family is to rescue his family from dying. That's what our calling is as family in Jesus' family. Now, please note that I did not say here to be a pastor is to do these things. No, to be a Christian is to do these things. To be in God's family is to do these things. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone, not a pastor, any one of us, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So at Trinity, we want to cultivate a culture of bringer-backers, of bringer-backers, because we all will need bringing back at one point or another. We want to cultivate a culture of bringer-backers and of word creators on Sunday mornings, right? Sometimes we create words. And this is uh, possibly, right here, the most potent tool we have at staying together for good. Many of us fear what will happen, though, if we level with someone about their sin. We fear what their response will be. But listen to this, Proverbs 25, a word spoken at the right time is like gold apples on a silver tray. A culture of bringer backers is a valuable culture indeed. Our tongues can be powerful forces for good in one another's hearts and lives. And and so I use this word culture very intentionally. A culture is a way of life. All right, when you think of the word culture, think of a way of life. A culture is a way of life that is enfleshed or embodied by all of us. A culture is a way of life that is enfleshed by all of us. Trinity needs a culture of bringer backers that is enfleshed by all of us. But why? What is at stake in cultivating a culture or not cultivating a culture of bringer backers? Those people in the pew next to you aren't just randos at the beach, all right? They are more than acquaintances, and they are more than friends. They are family, and sometimes they need to be rescued. Sometimes you'll need to be rescued to be brought back. Ray Ortland lays out a really helpful framework that we've circled around again and again through the years, uh, infrequently, occasionally. But if we want Trinity to have a culture of bringer-backers, it has to be a safe place. It has to be a safe place to confront sin and to confess sin. Both things have to be safe in order for us together, collectively, to cultivate a culture of bringer-backers. And it's going to have to liberally enflesh three things. Gospel plus safety plus time. 
Gospel safety time. Here's what Ortland says. He says, this is what everyone needs. A lot of gospel plus a lot of safety plus a lot of time. Gospel, good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures of this gospel. Constant immersion. Wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Safety, a non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone, no cornering anyone, no shaming, but respect and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Time. No pressure, not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. So gospel love is the motivation for our mutual discipline of one another. What about the need for it, the need for discipline, preventing gospel distortion? What would you think of a coach who never made his team run laps after sloppy play? Or maybe think of an English teacher who never corrects a misplaced modifier with a red pen? or a parent who never teaches their child to obey authority. You'd probably say that those people aren't really doing their job, not being very effective at what their calling is. They all have to deliver, the coach, the teacher, the parent, they all have to deliver bad news from time to time in order to alleviate a problem. Okay, so then what would you think about a church who disciples and that teaches but doesn't practice discipline? A church that doesn't practice discipline, mutual discipline, we're not talking about like authority to congregants, we're talking about to one another. A church that does not practice discipline is ultimately a church that is on the path to being good for nothing. A church does not, that does not practice mutual discipline is on the path to being a church that is good for nothing. Jonathan Lehman explains. He actually wrote a book. It's the red, glaring book out on our bookshelves out there. It looks intimidating and scary, uh, but I would encourage you, if you've got more questions about the concept of church discipline, uh, pick up a copy of that book out on those bookshelves. Short book, uh, helpful book, and I lean into it a lot in, uh, in my study of this in the last couple of weeks. So here's what Lehman says. He says, fundamentally, church discipline is about the, re- the reputation of Christ and whether or not the church can continue to affirm the verbal profession of someone whose life egregiously mischaracterizes Christ. In other words, we're not talking about the times when you overreact at your spouse or blow up at your kids, unless these are repeated, unrepented of kinds of sins. The sins and circumstances of sin will vary tremendously, but this one question always needs to be at the forefront of our church's thoughts. How will this sinner's sin and our response to it reflect the holy love of Christ? After all, he says, to care about the reputation of Christ is to care about the good of non-Christians. When churches fail to practice church discipline, they begin to look like the world. They are no witness at all to a world that's lost in darkness. He says, churches begin to look like the world when they don't practice discipline. Here's another way of saying that our gospel message gets diluted and distorted. And when this happens, we become of no value to the people who need Jesus the most. We're here to be light, but when that light is hidden by our own sin or by our own worldliness, we've lost our unique value to the world as a church. Church discipline prevents gospel distortion. Church discipline prevents gospel distortion. So I I want to say that church discipline is a really good gift from God, despite the press that it has gotten through the years. To be sure, 
church discipline has definitely been abused by some church leaders. If that is your experience, I'm so sorry. If you need to talk about that or counsel through that, I would love to speak with you about that. It has been abused by some church leaders. But I think probably the bigger problem is that it has been underused by church leaders. I heard one guy say this. He says that my sense is that most churches today admit that church discipline is biblical. Sarah just read about it for us a few minutes ago. But few churches practice it. No matter where I've addressed this topic, people find an excuse to avoid obeying Jesus' and Paul's instructions. South Africans say it doesn't work in a tribal culture like theirs. Brazilians observe that people's families are too tight-knit. Native Hawaiians suggest that it's too confrontational for their live-and-let-live ethic. East Asianers say it doesn't work in a shame culture, and Americans are concerned about getting sued. Everyone has an excuse to not practice church discipline. But it is something that Trinity is uh, committed to as it is reflected in Matthew 18. And it's something that you as an individual Christian ought to be committed to for my good. I need you to be committed to discipline for my good, for everyone's good, for y'all's good, and for the world's good as well. The Bible's perspective on discipline is not negative. It's not harsh. Discipline is presented as a sign of genuine love. Surely you found this to be true in your own home if you have children. Is there discipline? Yes. Is it born out of love? I hope so. It better be. The Lord disciplines those he loves, Hebrews 12. That's God's kind of discipline, kind of discipline to his kids. So what specifically is church discipline? Three aspects of it here that I want to see. Church discipline is needed when a representative of Jesus, a Christian, when a representative of Jesus characteristically and unrepentantly fails to represent Jesus. And church discipline is the process then of confronting that sin for the purpose of achieving restoration in that person's pursuit of Jesus' likeness. And then finally, church discipline culminates with either restoration to that pursuit of Jesus' likeness or removal from membership and communion of a local church. The need for discipline is not driven by a list of sins that are like super bad and uniquely qualify for church discipline. That's not in play at all here. The need for discipline is driven by a single question. Can our church continue to publicly affirm this person as a credible representative of Jesus? That is all that we're after here. Not big sins or little sins, unrepentant sins. Well, how in the world do we determine uh, this? uh, How do we determine the answer to this question, considering that we are all sinners who sin all the time, right? You're looking at a sinner who sins all the time. I'm looking at a whole bunch of sinners who sin all the time. In the end, aren't we all pretty poor at repping Jesus? I think so. But it's like I've told you before, we talked about before, about repentance. This is a difference that I always try to point out to my kids. Do I sin less than my kids? I hope so. Uh, But only to a degree, probably. That is not the major difference between me and my kids. The primary difference isn't marked by sinning less, though I hope that I do, but by turning from my sin to Jesus more quickly and more often. That is the primary difference. Christians should be doing that all the time, all the time, turning more quickly and more often. Sinclair Ferguson teases this out well in a way that only a Scottish theologian can state it, all right? Here's what he says. The whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I repented 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's all done and dusted? 
uh, whatever that means in Scotland. And he says, no, it's not done and dusted for Jesus. Repentance is the whole of the Christian life. This transformation, this newness, this difference that is the Christian life takes place only when we find ourselves bowing down to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ through routine repentance. Well, what does this have to do with church discipline? Church discipline is not for characteristically and genuinely repentant believers. Say that again. Church discipline is not for characteristically, we're characterized by repenting, and genuinely repentant believers. So like if a woman is having an affair but stops when confronted and returns to Jesus, well then church discipline isn't necessary. But if she refuses to repent and to turn to Jesus, well then it may be necessary. Church discipline is, on the other hand, for characteristically unrepentant believers. Church discipline is for characteristically unrepentant believers. Where do we draw this from out of the scriptures? 1 Corinthians 6. Do you, know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous don't get the kingdom of God. So the unrighteous here are those who pursue their sin without repentance, without constantly turning back to Jesus, without turning away from their sin and to Jesus. So in the end, characteristically repentant people demonstrate that they belong in the church. They're in the family. On the other hand, characteristically unrepentant people demonstrate that they do not belong in the church because the unrepentant, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why the central question is, can our church continue to publicly affirm this person as a credible representative of Jesus? Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. John says, for this is what the love of God is, to keep his love for God, is to keep his commandments. Are these just the words of a couple of cosmic killjoys? No. Why is this the constant drumbeat of the scripture? To obey God. Because Jesus knows intimately that God's commands are good. Because God himself is good. So to stray from those words is to stray from what is best for human flourishing. What is most, what is most best, what is best for you as a human being is to follow Jesus' words as closely as you can. You will flourish most as a human when you stay as close to this book and Jesus as possible. So back to our definition of discipline here. Church discipline is the process of confronting sin for the purpose of achieving restoration in the pursuit of Jesus' likeness. So while this concept of church discipline has an edge, like the word discipline is even edgy, discipline. It kind of sounds a little edgy itself, doesn't it? It includes confrontation after all. There is an edge to it. Which of us loves confrontation? Not many of us. There is an edge, but it actually has some really positive forward momentum to it too. So how about like a positive spin on our definition of church discipline? Church discipline is the process of patiently helping Trinity to progressively look more like heaven by helping each other become more like Jesus. This is what we're after right here. Church discipline is the process of patiently gospel plus safety plus time. Church discipline is the process of patiently helping Trinity to progressively look more like heaven by helping each other become more like Jesus. And this heaven-likeness is meant to intrigue and to invite a lost and watching world. The foundation is gospel love. The need for discipline is to prevent gospel distortion in a world that needs hope. 
And the purpose, number three today, the purpose of discipline is restoring gospel clarity. Restoring gospel clarity. When a coach points out sloppy play, when the English teacher identifies poor grammar, the hope is that the athlete or that the student changes, right? In a sense, the hope is that they repent, not in a moral sense, but repent from their poor play or their poor writing, and then turn from what they were doing to something better, right? Better play, better writing. The same is the case for church discipline. We want to restore clarity on what a representative of Jesus should look like. That's the whole point of church discipline. And ideally, as we are disciplining one another, you might say just discipling one another, same thing, discipling one another, disciplining one another, mobilizing each other to look a little bit more like Jesus. When we're doing this, if one of us is, uh, as we're discipling one another, if one of us is perpetually stealing from a company and we confront that in somebody else, they stop, right? That's the point of discipline. If one of us isn't gathering with the church for worship routinely, we start. If one of us is involved in an adulterous relationship, we stop. We restore clarity to what a follower of Jesus should look like. That's the point of discipline. Love disciplines. But it's a positive discipline. It's a discipline toward your best self, toward your most Christ-like self. Church discipline should occur, occur in two spheres here at Trinity. Ordinary and then extraordinary, extraordinary. Ordinary and extraordinary. The goal is always, 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 always for discipline to stay in the ordinary category. We all are in the need for ordinary discipline. Every single person under the sound of my voice. Why is this? Because every Christian ever needs ordinary discipline from other Christians. I'm looking at you, and you need ordinary discipline from other Christians. You're looking at me, and I need the same, all right? We're all in this together. There is no stigma to this any more than there is a stigma to a coach making his team run laps or to an English teacher breaking out her red pen. We all need it, and that's okay. This plants us all in two camps every single second of our Christian lives, needy and needed. We talk about this a lot. We are always needy and needed in the church. You are needy and needed for ordinary discipline. You're needy for it, and you're needed for it. Our need for this should make sense to us as ordinary Christians. A very basic belief of Christianity is that we are all finite and that we are all fallen. Naturally, we'll need other believers to help us know when we've strayed from the path of discipleship. It's very normal. It's okay. Ordinary discipline is so normal and it's so needed. Needy discipline is happening all the time. Look at this from Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And how do we do this? How do we hold fast to this book without wavering? The writer continues. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we hold fast? We stir one another up. That's how. With our words to love and good works. Now, this can have like positive undertones. Come on, come on, brother. You can make it. I know you're in the thick of a serious trial, but keep hanging on to Jesus. It's worth it. Keep believing, keep trusting, keep, keep clinging. It can look like that. Or it might have some more like negative, constructive undertones. Brother, I, I hear you telling me about this other person's sins or flaws, but I wanna, what I want to tell you is go tell them. You shouldn't be telling me this. Go tell them that. And I'm going to follow up with you soon to see if you want to go speak with them about that. Those are some hard words to say, but that's what this discipline looks like. Don't come to me about their sin. 
You go to them about their sin. Both approaches stir the party up toward love and good. As Christians, we should be being conformed into the image of Jesus through our interactions with one another. I wonder if your interactions have ever produced more Christ-like in someone else, Christ-likeness in someone else. For instance, years ago, I received this text from a friend a few hours before I got up to preach, and he was seeking to sort of stir me up toward finding my, the security of my identity in Jesus rather than a good performance from this pulpit. That's ordinary discipline, just a, a text pointing me in the right direction. It's him helping my heart run laps around the beautiful identity that is mine in Christ Jesus. Every teen, team runs laps. Every Christian, Christian's heart needs to, too. Here's what he said over text. He said, Wait, you wake up this morning not to a voice that says do something, but a voice that says receive something. And that's God's voice. And you need to receive the love that he has brought to you in the person of Jesus. As you present the risen Christ before us this morning, did you know that the resurrection is for Josh Hurst, too? The things you are preaching are as true for you as they are for your audience. I'm praying you can feel that hope today. That's a real text I got on a real phone. If you don't have friends that will text you and speak to you like that, come track me down, and I will hook you up with some friends that will serve you in those ways. Hopefully you can be a friend like that. Hopefully I'll be a friend like that. But that text was the stuff of ordinary discipline. I was being sharpened and pressed by my friend to pursue Jesus more faithfully and to rest in his gospel more fully not in a performance. Ordinary discipline could be an encouragement, like I just read to you from my text inbox, or it could be more corrective in nature. Something like, hey man, I've noticed that you have not been in a church gathering in quite a while. Is everything okay? Because if everything is okay and you've just been sort of lazy about it or absent, you know Jesus says not to forsake coming together, right? You should obey Jesus. You may even get out your Bible and turn to Hebrews 10 and say something like this. Jesus says not to neglect meeting together, but to come together to encourage one another, and even all the more as you see the day approaching, as you see it drawing near. This is ordinary discipline. We'll be talking a little bit more about this specifically in our family meeting tonight, so members, please join us for that. I want to say, too, that feast that's after the family meeting, if you're not a member, you are more than welcome to join us for that. We'd love to have you join us for that. Family meeting just for members, feast, come one, Come all. But this right here is ordinary discipline. Looking at someone and saying, listen, you haven't been to church in months, and God's calling on you through Jesus is to gather with God's people, to be encouraged and to be an encouragement, to be needy and to be needed. That's ordinary discipline, and we all need it from time to time. Uh, This godly gospel pressure should come from all of us. This godly gospel pressure should come from all of us, not just the pastors. Don't immediately turn your back on the person while you're on the dock. Don't immediately turn your back on the person who's flailing in the water and run to the house to find a parent. No, you might not have enough time. You try first. Ordinary discipline isn't delegatable. It's not on the deacons. It's not on the elders. It's on all of us as members, at least initially. Don't delegate this. This is what it means to have a culture of bringer-backers. We collectively, together, bring them back. We, we help restore them to a place where they are credible representatives of Jesus. 
There are not enough pastors to do all the needed bringing back. We have to be in this together. You have a critical role in the the functional discipline and discipleship of this church. We're in this together. But now, there are times when our ordinary measures of discipline don't work, and you'll have to seek help. That's when more intense versions of discipline bubble to the surface. But I want to say this, when discipline is the the sort of normal business of our lives, the normal flow, then when it comes to more intense versions of discipline, it makes more sense. It's just like the eventual destination for ordinary discipline. Ordinary discipline, if it doesn't work, turns into extraordinary discipline. So here's what extraordinary discipline is. The extraordinary process of church discipline typically begins when the individual in sin is unwilling to repent over an extended period of time. So most extraordinary church discipline is not as much about sin as it is about the ongoing unwillingness to turn from that sin. Repent. The process of church discipline concludes when the believer either repents or is formally removed from membership. This kind of discipline may happen in the instance of an affair, again, like we talked about earlier, that a woman is having, but that she is unwilling to turn from. Adultery misrepresents the faithfulness of Jesus, who has never once himself been unfaithful. It's destructive to marriage and family. And so over the course of a long, let me emphasize that, gospel plus safety plus time, over the course of a long period of time, the elders in the congregation would come alongside of her, beg her to come back to Jesus, to live a life that is worthy of her calling, to restore her to being a credible representative of the faithfulness of Jesus. But if she refuses... We cannot allow her to sully the name of Jesus. We must confront her because she is supposed to be repping Jesus as a Christian, but she's not. Maybe an illustration could help here. When the president's press secretary comes out to make a statement for him, right now for Joe Biden, it's Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary essentially speaks on behalf of the president. She speaks for the president. What she says is what he says right? The president's name is very much attached to her words. That's why she tries to be very careful about what she says. Imagine, though, for a second, if she started spouting a whole bunch of talking points that were counter to the Biden administration. How long do you think that she would last? Like about a half second, right? She'd be out of, out of a job right away. Why? Because her words are supposed to reflect her boss's words. We're no different as Christians. As Christians, Jesus' name is very much attached to us. Our words ought to be his words. At Trinity, when we collectively receive new members into membership, like we will do tonight, I think, maybe, I'm not sure. But when we do, when we receive new members into membership, we're saying the best we can tell that this person is an accurate, though imperfect, representative of the words and demands of Christ. That's what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. In a sense, Jesus' name is attached to you, Christian. But if one of our members refuses to rep Jesus in an honoring way, well, something needs to be done for that person, for the church, and then ultimately for the watching world. We shouldn't continue to treat that person as if he or she is a Christian because he or she is demonstrating that likely he or she is not. I don't know about you, but some of this The pointedness of it makes me feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But go back to that doc video that we watched a few minutes ago. What is more uncomfortable?
staring at a drowning person or diving in to save them. If we are unwilling to take this step with real words from our mouths to people who are straying, drifting, or dying, if we are unwilling to take this step, I wonder if we are content to be the girl on the dock, watching the flailing, the kicking, the screaming, hearing the lungs fill with water, but relatively indifferent because it's hard, it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient to move towards someone like this. I know it full well. I feel the pull to turn my head. But we shouldn't. We would not want that person believing that they are a Christian and that all is well between them and God. That would be the most unloving thing that we could do as fellow believers. In addition, we don't want the watching world to believe that she's an example of what it means to be in Christ. Now, this does not mean, hear me, this does not mean that we don't love on her. This does not mean that we don't speak to her. It just means that we change our approach toward her, beckoning her back to life in Jesus, her most flourishing self, right, in alignment with this word and with Jesus. The practical outworking of this comes in three distinct steps. These are all from Matthew 18 that Sarah just read for us a few minutes ago. The hope in the prayer is always to stay in step one. The hope in the prayer is always, always, always to stay in step one, private. All of us should live in the culture of step one, cultivating a culture of bringer backers, right? Privately confronting and privately confessing. Church discipline, hear this. Church discipline is not like an administrative process. Hit these steps to hopefully make the person act better, all right? It's not just an administrative process to get people to act right. It's intended to be a set of rails on which ordinary, loving, and Christ-centered relationships travel. This is ordinary. It's the, it's the tracks that we, uh, the, the train of our relationships travel down. We must keep this in mind. And with all of these steps, there are large gaps of time, gospel plus safety plus time. This is not a rush process. First, go privately. Keep the circle small. Keep the circle small. We see here that Jesus is keyed in on keeping the circle of knowledge as small as possible. Look at verse 15, if you still have your Bibles open all these minutes later. Look at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, go tell that fault between him and you alone. If someone has sinned against you, or if you have observed someone else's sin, it is your responsibility hear this, to go and take care of that with them, with them. Just like you would want, if you were caught up in a sin, you wouldn't want that broadcast to a whole bunch of people. You would hope that they would come to you about that. You have no business sharing someone else's sins or faults with others, particularly before you share that with the person themselves. C groups and friend groups aren't times to air grievances against the leadership or against other individuals. If you have concern about a sin or a flaw in someone, obey obey Jesus and keep the circle small. Tell that fault between him and you alone, Jesus says. If you are rallying with others around the sins or grievances against others, you are contributing to a culture of toxic criticism and not gracious discipline. Next, make the move quickly. If you're on the dock and you see signs of drowning, you don't wait to see how things will progress. Don't look at your watch and time it and see how long they can tread water. It's like, how would you want to be handled if you were drowning? If you see a concerning trend of sin developing in someone, 
Track it down quickly. Move quickly and confront it. Next, approach others humbly. Which of us has not given into temptation? This ought to humble us all to the dirt. If you, see a, uh, if you see a sin in someone else, approach them humbly. Don't go with a chip on your shoulder. Matthew 7, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Some of y'all are completely oblivious to your own specks and logs. Have a little humble self-awareness that you are a sinner too, that you need help just like that other person. You are needed, yes, but you're needy too. Don't shy away from the truth. Don't hear me saying that. But be humbly self-aware of your own limitations, which leads to the next. Show patient love. Show patient love. Now, I need us to hear this clearly. There may be instances in which being patient is not the best way forward. Think of someone, for instance, who is sexually abusing children or even adults. That is not the time to be patient in all of the steps, steps of extraordinary discipline to let them slowly play themselves out. Now, we need to nip that right in the bud, right? You move faster in that scenario to protect those who are vulnerable. Most of our sin, though, is not that cut and dry. It's way more complex, and we need to move intentionally but patiently. Most people have gotten into that situation because of 100 small steps in the wrong direction, and it's going to take them 100 small steps in the other direction to get there. It's going to take time. Be aware of that about yourself, about others. Church discipline works best in a culture that is marked by patient and encouraging love. Henry Drummond wrote, you will find, if you think for a moment, that the people who influence you are the people who believe in you. In an atmosphere of suspicion, we shrivel up. But in an atmosphere of belief, we expand and find encouragement and fellowship. Next, keep the aim restorative. Look at verse 15. He says, if the brother listens to you, you have gained your brother. The aim is gaining a brother. Or like James 5 said, bringing back a sinner from his wandering. The goal of discipline is to gain and rescue, not to criticize and shame. Gain and rescue, not criticize and shame. This reality should influence what you say and how you say it. Despite our best attempts, not everyone responds well to private discipline. And when that happens, unfortunately, the circle does have to widen, according to Jesus. So let's say that they won't agree to stop sinning in the ways that they have been. Then what? Well, that's when you sprint off the dock to go find some help. Number two, go with a partner. First, you go privately, then you go with a partner. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. This is often when the elders get involved. Galatians 6.1, brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should help restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This part of the process with two or three witnesses helps to establish facts and it provides wisdom. None of us in and of ourselves know it all or have what it takes to be a fix-it-all. We need each other. Bringing a partner or two with you into this helps even out your own perspective and helps ensure that you yourself aren't getting tunnel vision in the situation. But let's say then, even after this step where you've gone with a partner or some partners, that the person refuses to turn their back on their sin and return to life in Jesus. What then? Third, go public. Go public. Verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The grave final step here. I do think the text imagines a, a sort of time or envisions a sort of time lapse here. It envisions enough time for the church, individuals in a church, to go to this person 
and plead with them to come back. In other words, this isn't like bing, bang, boom, and we're done with church discipline. Gospel plus safety plus time. How long should this three-step process take of private, partner, public? As long as it takes to demonstrate that the person is characteristically unrepentant. After these three steps, private, partner, public, what's next? Hopefully, by God's grace, full-on restoration. Back to Jesus, credible representative of Jesus. Restoration occurs and discipline concludes when the church is willing to once more vouch for the individual as a credible representative of Jesus. Sadly, grievously, if this does not occur, it is time for the final step of discipline, removal from church membership and removal from the Lord's Supper. This is just another way of saying that we treat them like unbelievers and we evangelize them, just like we would a non-Christian anyway. So discipline does not mean that we don't show love to the person. It doesn't mean that we bar them from the doors of this building. We want them here under the influence of the gospel, under the influence of your uh, collective voices singing and shouting the redemption and the praises of King Jesus. We're not blocking them from this place. But it does mean that we change our approach toward them, beckoning them beckoning them back to life in Jesus. The final step of church discipline simply means that a church no longer affirms a person's profession of faith. After all, to receive someone into church membership through baptism is to affirm their profession of faith. It's to say, yes, we believe that Josh is a Christian and we will affirm his membership in the body of Christ through the Lord's Supper. The final step of discipline, therefore, means just the opposite. We no longer affirm Josh's profession and therefore remove him from membership. If we can no longer affirm someone as a credible Christian, it means they should no longer partake of the Lord's table either. This is because the imagery of communion is very closely and intimately tied to community. Communion and community. We talked about this maybe four or five weeks ago. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon that talks about the relation between baptism and communion. It's called More Than a Snack. Go to our website and find that sermon if you want more on this, but listen to 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a collective participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. The imagery here is all of us in here eating from one piece of bread, the true bread of life, Jesus. So we all eat broken pieces of a single piece of bread, symbolizing our oneness with Jesus and our oneness with each other. Communion, if you remember, is like the symbolic family dinner table that you sit down at once you've entered the house through the symbolic door of baptism. But if this person who is under church discipline is unrepentantly living a life that does not represent the family, well, then they shouldn't eat at the family dinner table because they're showing themselves not to be in the family. We've spoken mostly today of the horizontally relational aspects of church discipline, how we discipline one another and disciple one another, how we do intentional spiritual good to one another. But I want to close today with the vertical aspects. We've talked horizontal, let's talk vertical. Us and the Father. So I want to close today with my very favorite scene from the entirety of the scriptures. As an encouragement to all of us, ordinary, repenting Christians, and as an incentive, encouragement to ordinary, repenting Christians, and an incentive to those of us who are a little bit reticent to repent in the sin that we are caught up in right now. 
I'm going to assume that all of us in here have somewhat of a familiarity with this scene. If you don't, I'd love to connect with you and talk with you about it a little bit more. But, but here's the scene. Jesus is telling the story about a wayward, unrepentant son. The story is called the prodigal son. But I'm going to parachute us down into the middle because we don't have time to do the whole story. The prodigal son has finally just repented in a pigsty. He's reached bottom, rock bottom. And he's turned his back on his sin, and he has started making his way back to his father, going to find hope and belonging back with his family. And then he becomes visible way out in the distance of his father's house, like a, like a tiny little speck out on the horizon. And what we learn from the story is that the father has actually been looking for him, hoping and praying that his son comes back. And before anyone else sees the speck on the horizon, the father sees the son. And when he sees his repenting son, what does he do? He breaks into a sprint. He's running all out for his boy. And you've got to imagine right now as the Pharisees are listening to Jesus telling the story, these snotty, proud Pharisees, they're feeling pretty good about how this thing is ending at this point. They're thinking that this is an angry sprint and that the father's going out there to let him know, give him what for. They're thinking that whatever this kid has coming to him, he deserves it. He needs to be held accountable for his strength. The father is a middle-aged man, maybe older. The closer I get to middle age, and I got a little bit closer to this last week, the closer I get to middle age, the older this mental version of this father gets in my mind's eye. But this, this guy is the owner of a significant estate with servants at his beck and call. There's a certain dignity to maintain for the, this wealthy man. It would have been beneath him to, to hike up his robes, to bare his legs, and then to start booking it out to this stinky son of his. But he does. And with compassion, with tears, with laughter, with, with joyful, boyish screams, this father runs. So undignified, unless, it's undignified, unless he's thrown decorum to the wind and given himself over to the overwhelming joy of his heart. This boy is coming back, a wayward son returning. And that's the way the father is about your repentance, about your returning. And then a football field or two away, a couple hundred yards from the house, there's this most loving collision that you could ever imagine. Their bodies collide in a holy huddle of love and hug and kiss. It's just this amazing reunion between father and son. The stink of sin and pigs all over the boy, the father's love overwhelming the stench of sin. Can you imagine? You see it in your mind's eye. Can you imagine this is how the Father comes at you, Christian, sprinting, arms open wide, when you come to yourself and realize that you're not okay and that it's a blessing to not be okay because you get a welcome like this from the Father. Behold, what manner of love is this? Now, the son's got to be confused at this point, right? Totally befuddled about what's happening. He had been expecting a big speech from dad. A whole bunch of huffing and puffing and finger pointing. A bunch of, I told you so. So he's trying to like roll out his plan for restitution. And like, now, see what had happened was, dad, but he does not even get to tell his story. 
Maybe you remember that the son's plan was to return as a hired servant and not as a son. He didn't even plan to like re-enter the family. But the father ignores the whole thing. He turns over his shoulder and he, and he shouts to one of the servants back down at the house. He says, quick, get the fattened calf ready to grill. Go into my closet, grab my best robe and that ring that's sitting on my dresser right now, grab that and come out here too. What? That's insane. Come on, this is scandalous. The kid had taken the father's assets and made ruin of them. He had squandered the father's money, scorned the father's name, mocked the father's honor all around town. And in return, what does the father say? Robe, ring, stake. All right? Stake is there in the text, just trust me. The father takes on the weight of the offense himself, and he's like, I got this. He doesn't let his son carry the guilt, not even for a beat of a heart. And more than that, he does not even let him sit in the shame, not even for a blink. No shame, just son, not servant, robe, ring, stake in my kid's honor. He's saying, I'm not waiting till you pay off your debt. There is no probation. You don't have to execute on a series of demands to get back in good with the fam. I am covering your rebellion with my love and with my righteous robe. I'm simply going to take you back as my son. Christians, do you hear this? Does your heart soar at the reality and the truth of this? A feast is prepared for you, son or daughter. Musicians are summoned. A perfectly marbled tomahawk ribeye is prepared. Evites are sent. A party is planned. God delights in saving foolish rebels like the prodigal son and foolish rebels like this. How lavishly and scandalously repenting Christians are loved. You need to know that God the Father, God your Father, is this way. He does not hold you at arm's length. Jesus didn't have to include these vivid, emotionally charged images. He wants you to feel something about the way that he feels about you. Feel it this morning. Don't be thick-skinned like we talked about last week. Be thin-skinned. Enjoy it. The gospel is too good to be true, family. It's like that song that we sing and will sing later today. Hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you my joy is complete. As I run into your arms open wide, I will see my Father who's waiting for me. How should we respond to ordinary or extraordinary discipline, repentance. Just come back to the Father. Arms are open wide. He will welcome us. The Father pardons all kinds of sinners, even the worst sinners in here. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Murderers, adulterers, cheaters, addicts, prostitutes, anything that you can think of. It's covered. There is a Father who wants you back. Won't you come? And won't you help others come? A cultivate, a cultivating a culture of bringer-backers. Don't stand on the dock. Go privately. Go with a partner. And if necessary, we'll go public. Not out of spite, but out of deep love for a straying sinner. I need that. And so do you. After all, we are more than friends. We are family. And that's beautiful. Will is going to come up and pray for us this morning. Let's pray. Let's go before 
the throne of grace with boldness. Father, thank you that you sent your son to redeem us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and redeeming us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here now, even with us, impressing your word upon our hearts and our minds. Thank you for this word this morning, Lord. And I pray, Father, that within us, you would give us hearts of love for one another to disciple each other, to discipline one another in love, in caring. Lord, I pray that we would not have to see an extraordinary event for discipline, but that we would be hard at work in ordinary events of discipling one another and loving each other into the kingdom of God. That you would do your work among us to set us free from the enemy who desires our souls. That we would be steadfast in your word and in prayer, thanking you and taking all things to you, Lord, for you are a good and a gracious God who loves his children. Lord, help us. Give us hearts to love you with all that we have and to love one another at least as much as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.